This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory, Glory to you, o Lord. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. So the question I have this morning is, who was the lucky couple? I mean, St. John doesn't tell us. I mean, can you imagine Jesus Christ showing up at your wedding? <laughs> at the time, of course, Jesus' identity as God's son was known only to Mary and to a small circle of disciples. So the couple really can't be blamed for not asking Jesus to officiate or to preach. But even so, I'm sure they were kicking themselves later when they found out who was secretly sitting in the back pew. The fact is that John doesn't tell us anything about the bride or the groom or their families. Indeed, the text is silent about the circumstances of the wedding altogether. Cana was a small and inconsequential town at the time, and there's nothing about the scene to suggest that this was in any way an important wedding involving prominent people. If anything, from the fact that the wine prematurely runs out, we can fairly assume that the couple was of modest means. It is, in short, a pretty unremarkable setting for Jesus' first public miracle. Just an unnamed poor Jewish couple getting married one afternoon in some podunk town in the hills of Galilee. But then again, maybe it is the sheer ordinariness of the scene that is the point. This could be any couple anywhere at any time. The scene is also a bit unusual in that Jesus is not the central character as the story opens. And there is even a question as to whether he really wants to be at the wedding at all. The lead character, rather, is Jesus' mother, Mary. She's the one John introduces first in the text. Jesus and the disciples seem to be just tagging along, perhaps at her urging. 
Mary is also the catalyst to all the action in the scene. She is the one who notices that the wine is running out and with classic understatement says to her son, they have no wine. I suspect, though, that it is Mary's eyes that do all the talking. I see her looking expectantly at her son, as only a Jewish mother could, as if to say, so what are you waiting for? For his part, however, Jesus seems reluctant to intervene. He responds to his mother almost petulantly, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to his mom, this is neither the time nor the place for my first miracle. I really have much bigger plans for my ministry than making some wine in this little backwater town, especially when there are people in this world who are hungry and dying and in need of healing. But Mary, God bless her, is persistent with Jesus. We don't know what she then might have said to Jesus to get him to change his mind, or more likely, the look she gives him. But we do know that just like all good Jewish sons, Jesus ultimately <coughs> listens to his mother and does what she asks. Jesus orders the servants to fill the six stone water jars to the brim. And then without any fanfare, special prayers, or even an announcement to the crowd, the water mysteriously becomes wine. And not just a little wine, but 180 gallons of wine, a ridiculously extravagant amount, even for the largest of weddings. And just like that, in the blink of an eye, a scene fraught with panic and scarcity is transformed into a joyous scene of abundance and wonder as the wedding feast rolls on into the night. With the wisdom that only the mother of God could have, Mary's insistent nudge reminds Jesus of an essential, even primary truth of his ministry. Christ's presence in the world is not only about healing the sick, not only about feeding the hungry and freeing the captive, it is also about sanctifying the ordinary stuff of life, about bringing joy to the hearts of God's people, about celebrating the simple gifts. Now, there are some folk who may bristle at my suggestion that Mary deserves some credit in this scene for redirecting Jesus' attention. Jesus, after all, is the Son of God, and for many that means he is all-knowing all the time. But with respect, I'd suggest we have to remember that Jesus was not only fully divine, but fully human too. And part of being human is learning to respect and obey and listen to a wise mother, especially when she is trying to teach you how to behave at a wedding. So a fairer reading of the scene, I think, is one that sees Jesus learning something here from his mother something important about the ordinary graces of human life. It is also true, of course, that we can interpret our gospel lesson as a theological allegory about Christ's identity, the first of many signs in John's gospel of Jesus' divine nature. On this view, the story is a parable about how the empty and dry 
vessels of an ancient and dying faith will be brought back to life through the abundance of Jesus' new wine, a wine that, of course, becomes the centerpiece of our Eucharistic meal and that points John's readers towards Easter morning. All of that is true. But even so, for me, the real power of this story lies less in its abstract symbolism than in the deep humanity, the deep humanity of the drama. A couple pledging their love to one another, the community gathered to sing, dance, and eat and drink with them, the risk of a calamitous end to the celebration as the wine runs out, and then the miracle of abundance as the water turns to wine, and all because a wise Jewish mother has the presence of mind and softness of heart to gently cajole her holy son into saving and sanctifying this precious moment. And so here we have Jesus' first miracle. And what a beautiful message it brings us that God's deepest desire for humanity is that we cherish the joy of being fully alive in each other's company. Just like we are here and now. And we hear this same message echoing in Isaiah, our first lesson this morning. The Lord delights in you, Isaiah sings to the people. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so too does our psalmist today extol the love of God, who wants nothing more than for us to feast in the abundance of his house and to drink from the rivers of his delight. All of these lessons talk about the divine desire for our joy. And this desire goes all the way back to Genesis, if you remember your Bible. I mean, remember that God originally placed Adam and Eve in the garden for the joy of each other's company, so that they might delight in creation. Yet we somehow keep forgetting this fact. Most of us seem too busy, too preoccupied and distracted even to stop to notice the sheer goodness that surrounds us on every side. Our culture somehow knocks the wonder out of us, convincing us that there's too much to be done, too many tasks to do, too much serious stuff to attend to. We come to regard joy and delight as guilty pleasures reserved for our spare time, if we have any, rather than an essential and life-giving part of who we are and who God wants us to be a joyful people. Joy is the reason for our being. Jesus himself makes this clear later in John's Gospel. And if you don't believe me, look at chapter 15, verse 11, where he explicitly says that his mission is to make humanity's joy complete. C.S. Lewis once described joy as the unbidden and enduring enchantment with everything God has given us. Joy has no purpose. It is its own reward, its own reason for being. Joy is filled with wonder, surprise, expectation, insight, beauty, and power. 
When we are joyful, we are open to the possibility of recreation and new life. Joy is what we're made for. If somebody asks you, what's the meaning of life? It's joy, according to the Bible. Now, I'm mindful, of course, that in the midst of this pandemic, and in the midst of a very divided country, joy may seem very remote to us right now. Our lives have been grievously disrupted. We're fatigued by the endlessness of it all. And most of us are still prevented from fully doing those things that normally do bring us joy. How on earth can we experience joy when everything right now seems so bleak? Well, for starters, let us remember that biblical joy is not the simplistic joy of a Hallmark greeting card but rather the deep joy that is in fact born of struggle and pain, that has known exile, that has lived through the wilderness, that even knows the horror of the cross. The Bible knows well the darkness that comes before joy, but it also reassures us that joy will always in the end break through and overcome the darkness. So even if joy is hard for you to feel right now, my invitation is for you to think back and remember those moments when you truly and deeply felt joy, when time stopped in its tracks and you were taken out of your head and put in touch with something much bigger and better and brighter than either the darkness of the world or the smallness of yourself. Maybe it was building sandcastles at the shore with a sibling or baking pies with grandma or skiing down the mountainside on fresh powder, or sitting with dad in the bleachers at Fenway Park, or listening to Bach, or maybe it was when you first met your beloved, or sat effortlessly next to him in silence by the fire on some cold wintry night, just soaking up each other's presence. But whatever your joy is or was, try to name it and reclaim it, and if you can, relive it. Even within the confines of our present isolation, try to be guided by what brings you joy, not what drags you down. And hold fast to this joy, for that is where God means you to be. And if you're still having trouble reliving joy for whatever reason, if that special person is gone, or if the burdens of life just seem too heavy right now, you can still live in the holy memory of that joy. And more than that, you can count on the blessed assurance we hear in Scripture today that Christ will bring you and me and all of us into the presence of that joy again. For joy will have the last word. Joy. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved. <laughs>